From Chicago, welcome to Three Degrees Discussions. I'm your host, Mike Vasquez. This is a podcast devoted to the stories behind the innovators, entrepreneurs, and leaders in the 3D printing industry. With knowledge, with the knowledge of new innovation and new players keep coming in, people don't really want to buy anything anymore. They just want capacity. So I predict that very similar to um, the Amazon's AWS uh, storage in the cloud on demand, I just need storage in the cloud. I just pay for it. I don't care where the servers are, what security, who you hire, uh, what facility requirement you have. I just pay for the the. Uh, the storage, and I think in the future, uh, that will be the same for 3D printing. Meaning, I am, let's say, I am, um, let's say, I'm Tesla. In the future, I want to make an e-bike, but I don't want to buy a machine. I don't want to operate it. I want you to just give me using your machine in the cloud. I just want 5,000 bike frame e-bike, and I want 7,000 e-scooters, and I want that material, and I want this spec this size and this cost, if you can do that, I will buy those. And if I need less, I will crank down the demand or, or double that demand, but I will skip tooling. So I think the behavior, the purchase cycle, and the 3D printing sales will be, they will be buying capacity, not printers anymore or parts. That was Tuan Tranfam. Tuan is the chief revenue officer at Arivo. Arivo is enabling manufacturing as a service for delivering composite manufacturing today via breakthroughs in software, robotics, and material science. With on-demand manufacturing of large thermoplastic composite parts and structures from bikes to flying cars, Arivo is revolutionizing mainstream manufacturing and the global supply chain. Tuan has spent 17 years working for seven 3D printing companies such as Z-Corp, 3D Systems, Objet, Stratasys, Arcam, Desktop Metal, and now Arivo. Tuan joins the show to talk about his experience selling multiple 3D printing platforms and how the customer of the technology has evolved over the past decade. Welcome to the show. Why don't we just get started with a little bit of a background and when you got your start in, in additive? Sure. I was lucky to uh, bump into 3D printing by accident in late uh, 2002. And through a friend uh, of a friend, um, I met uh, up with the CFO of uh, Zquam and I was really excited about what they were doing with glue and powder. So I joined uh, 3D printing and Z-Corp uh, summer of 2003, and then spent the next 11 years working for Z-Corp 3D system, Object Stratasys. And while at the Object, I did uh, some research with the Israeli team looking into metals, and I got excited about metals because through 2012, it turns out less than 2% of the entire industry of 55,000 industrial 3D printers were in metal. So I got excited because what if it was three, four or 10% and really wanted to get into the metal space. And Stratasys back then had just been a distributor for Swedish Arkham. So then I was able to get into Arkham as head of sales for the US uh, in June 2014 and spent uh, two and a half years building up the Arkham business in the US, uh, followed by, just before they got acquired by GE uh, for 700 million, I joined Desktop Metal 
in September 2016, building out the go-to-market strategy for desktop metal, uh, which I did for three plus years and recently uh, wanted to venture into something new and joined uh, Aviva for Composites 3D printing. So it's been an amazing 17 years so far. And throughout that time, you've worked with companies at different stages, I would say, in the 3D printing world, some public companies, some startups. And what has been kind of a common thread that you've seen with all the different companies and, and technologies that you've, you've worked with throughout your time in the industry? I think um, it comes back to your personality, right? Um, do you like to be in a well-defined uh, in a big company. Um, actually, a lot of people don't know this, but before 3D printing, I spent four years with Intel. Um, and being one out of 80,000 employees of Intel was, uh, was definitely uh, not interesting. So I had a passion to make a difference and work in a company where there are not well-defined boxes, but everybody works together as a team. So I actually deliberately joined a startup. So the startup I joined in Semiconductor in 99 was a small company called Giga, and it got acquired for 1.25 billion in the spring of the year 2000, just before the bubble bursted. And at Zico, I was employee number 80 as well. And the same is true with Arkham, I was employee number 80. So I haven't been, in the very early beginning. So desktop metal was really uh, early. I When I signed the papers uh, with Rick Pollock, I was in green number 24 with the option to join no later than September 1st, which I did. And at that time I was in green number 46. So I enjoy being in a startup where you get to define the, the procedures, the product, the process, and really uh, the, the most enjoyable part is actually building up the team because it's really about the people. So I really enjoy being in a startup. And when I joined recently in March, Avivo, Avivo uh, we were about uh, 38 people and today we're about 60. So it's fun. It's challenging, but a lot of fun. So for those who aren't in-depthly familiar with Avivo, can you explain a little bit about what you guys are doing? Sure. So um, Avivo has actually been around for six years. It's a Silicon Valley startup, uh, initially looking to uh, FDM composites, uh, but saw that uh, the way of the future would be robotic for a larger part uh, using continuous carbon fiber. So Avivo spent the last um, six years optimizing the hardware, software, and materials all developed in-house, made in America and have just begun commercializing the product and has uh, sold two aqua printers uh, to Japan and brought me on board to extend the, um, uh, moving us to the next phase of uh, commercializing the company. And we recently raised the 25 million in funding to grow that through not just enabling uh, parts business for continuous carbon fiber, but also printer business sales uh, in addition. So we are right now building the largest uh, composites print farm, 3D printing composites print farm in Vietnam. I will start with a dozen of uh, aqua printers, but there will soon be 120 plus. 
Wow. And I see a lot of your LinkedIn posts. You're next to a, a really cool looking bike. So what's, uh, is that a, a target market for you guys, kind of the, the cycling transportation area? You know, uh, each technology has its um, strength and has its weakness. Um, we are very good at making strong, uh, stronger parts, strong parts, but uh, lightweighting them at the same time. So because of our robot technology and the filament size that we're using through our single extruder deposition head, we are very good at um, geometries from from a soccer ball to a bike frame. And the bigger, the better, because uh, if you go bigger than a basketball, none of the FDM composite machine like Markforge or Anisocrit uh, can print those. So that's a, a mid-size or large size, nobody can do that. And you know, a bike frame is just a perfect size considering our built envelope is roughly one meter cube. So a bike frame uh, is a perfect size especially for continuous carbon fiber because the shape of a frame, especially without the seat tube, is going to be awesome with the continuous carbon fiber because you don't want to cut the fiber uh, too many times. It slows down the process. So um, the geometry, the size, the application, the volume, given the stage where we're in, it's just a, a killer app, one of many. Uh, we are known as a bike company, but we have done e-scooters, but we will do a lot more. But it's not a bad thing to be known for being an e-bike company or, or e-scooter company. Right. And I suppose now with kind of the way COVID is, there's really a bike boom in terms of people. I know my family and I have looked into bikes and I've, I've heard a lot of the same or across the country where just transportation is, is kind of changing even before this and and cycling and, and biking is getting more interest in, in many cities. Yeah, but if you think about it, this would not be the only pandemic in our lifetime, right? There might be more, and we might not have a vaccine uh, for those yet. Um, so right now, who wants to commute for urban mobility? Who want to commute in a crowded subway or, or a bus or, or other transportation for urban mobility? And so I think uh, e-bikes and, and e-scooters is going to be booming. And also, it's green. It's good for the planet, right? E-mobility is going to be even bigger. Yeah, and when we kind of were first organizing this podcast, one of the things that I was really, really excited to talk with you about and, and hear your perspectives on is, I mean, over your career, having worked in many different technologies and with different companies, you've talked to so many customers and had those customer conversations about 3D printing. Um, I'd like to dive into that a little bit and and maybe just start with how how has the the customer, the end user, changed over the time that you've been in in the industry? Kind of maybe first starting with. Uh, Z Corp is kind of a, a different technology and application, mostly on the prototyping. But when you're when you're talking to potential customers, then like, w- what perspectives or, or what was your approach in in telling them about the technology? Sure. Um, to paint the landscape, you have to think of the whole industry being less than a billion, and now fast forward 15 years later, we are about 10 billion. And in 15 to 20 years, it might be 100 billion. And uh, thinking that in the past, there was a lot of prototyping in, in plastic. And there have been a big push for metals for prototyping. And in between, you have composites uh, between plastic and metal. 
So to answer your question, in the early days, it was about making 3D printing affordable. So the market didn't even know about 3D printing. So we had to teach people about 3D printing even before what your product can do and how it does it differently than your competitor, right? So the, uh, back then, 15 years ago, there was below 100,000 industrial. There was only dimension in Zigbor. So the world was much simpler, right? It was either you kind of go fast prototyping in full color or you need strong plastic uh, parts for, pro, for functional prototyping and tuning. Um, today it is um, is very crowded and, and there are a lot of materials available today with composites and ceramic and, and, and it, it, new innovation uh, keeps coming. So it's gonna force the sales guy to hone in their sales pitch and be knowledgeable about the uh, ecosystem was getting bigger. But to answer your question in a different way, in the past was, uh, I want to learn this new technology. I want to bring it in-house, whether it was for plastic or metal. But actually, that has changed. You know, now there are too many options, too many technologies, there are too many material offering. Um, what the customer that I'm starting to hear from is that, you know what? I have a problem. I'm, I've done a certain part uh, traditionally. Uh, I really don't care. And for example, let's say it's a metal part. I really don't care how you're doing it. Is it laser beam, electron beam? How you're doing it? Uh, I want you to do uh, replicate the same or better design in metals, for instance. But I want you to make it cheaper and faster. So that forces the, the, the game where they are not necessarily defined by what machine they need to bring in-house or procure. They want the manufacturer to provide those solutions. And now they are like, I don't even want to buy a machine. I just want those parts and uh, not only uh, the uh, non-negotiable is the quality, but cheaper and faster. But I, yeah, but I, I need to have the financial justification. So unless you can move costs from dollars per cubic inch to cents, um, the, then you're not gonna uh, sell to them. But I'm trying to lead to, I think the future customer of 3D printing will be uh, of a different breed, especially with COVID. Because with so many new technologies and innovation and startups, if you think of five years ago, a lot of the players uh, you see today like uh, Xerox or HP or Carbon or Destamel, they weren't even around six years ago. So imagine six years from now, there will be even newer players. It could be players, new entrants like Google or Amazon or, or, or other companies. So it, it, it with, knowledge, with the knowledge of new innovation and new players keep coming in, people don't really want to buy anything anymore. They just want capacity. So I predict that very similar to um, the Amazon's AWS uh, storage in the cloud on demand, I just need storage in the cloud. I just pay for it. I don't care where the servers are, what security, who you hire, uh, what facility requirement you have. I just pay for the the uh, the storage, and I think in the future, uh, that will be the same for 3D printing, meaning I am, let's say, I am, um, let's say I'm Tesla. In the future, I want to make an e-bike, but I don't want to buy a machine. I don't want to operate it. I want you to just give me, using your machine in the cloud, I just want 5,000 bike frame e-bike, 
and I want 7,000 e-scooters, and I want that material, and I want this spec, this size, and this cost. If you can do that, I will buy those. And if I need less, I will crank down the demand or, or double that demand. But I will skip tooling. So I think the behavior, the purchase cycle, um, the 3D printing sales will be, they will be buying capacity, not printers anymore or parts. That's really interesting. So I'm trying to digest that a little bit. So if you imagine that scenario, if you're a printer manufacturer, you've got a new technology for producing parts, you kind of flip your business model on, on its head a little bit that you're producing, um, you may enable a few partner contract manufacturers to use your technology. You're not trying to sell to everybody. And, and then part of your sales force is really driven on finding applications to fill the capacity that you've, you've built. Is that, um, is that kind of the, the idea? Correct. Because you're trying to solve a problem and application where the customer do not need to, even if they have the money, they, they, they shouldn't have to buy the equipment and then struggling to find an operator who actually know how to operate the machine and retain that staff in a facility, bulletproof, fireproof, just to run this expensive laser powder bed or, or, or electron beam powder bed. So skipping all that has what people want is just a solution. They do not necessarily need to own the equipment or facility as long as everything is proprietary and under NDA. And, and everything's protected. I just want to pay for capacity. I just want to pay parts. Yep. Interesting. And you kind of see that a little bit with the way that some of the big printer equipment manufacturers have started to build in their own consulting teams, right? To go into the, as part of the, the, the sales channel where they're helping with driving solutions and applications. Ultimately, they're trying, in, in some cases, to get to a, a machine sale. Um, but they're seeing if they can either be somewhat of a matchmaker or kind of build some of those application sets. Agreed, agreed. Uh, and uh, EOS did a great job with the Additive Minds or AdWords from GE because if you don't help prospect to figured out the, the right application to go additively with, then you're going to have a struggle. Whether they're buying a, a piece of equipment or not on how to operate it, that should be secondary. So I think um, there's now a trend that people, uh, manufacturers are spending more uh, funding in training and enabling a consulting team, application team, application development. And in addition, you saw the push from carbon. You don't need to own the equipment. You can just subscribe so that you never hold the title, but it will always have the latest uh, uh, updates and upgrades for both hardware and software. But that is where we are today. What I'm saying is, I predict in the future, it will go even beyond that. You don't even need to buy an equipment. You don't even need to subscribe uh, to any equipment or capacity in the, uh, equipment because you can just buy capacity and they will help you to optimize the consulting of the application and the design. Once that is done in, and the question is, do you need 5,000 e-bike or 15,000? It doesn't matter. I can do a 12 different model. I can do customization. So really the play here is capacity and supply chain disruption. And part of 3D printing is also bringing uh, manufacturing back 
uh, to America. And that is very refreshing. For sure. And, and I think with, with just seeing a lot of the trends over the last in three to five years, you're seeing more excitement about the potential of, of disrupting some of those supply chains and, and having new business models. And as you kind of are talking to customers now with Revo and, and in your past, uh, I mean, how much of your kind of challenge comes from just explaining the technology, right? You've worked in a lot of different modalities with the, the Z Corp and desktop metal and um, RCAM and, and now Revo, all of those fuse together materials, use different materials, have different timescales, different pros and cons. Um, I mean, what's that challenge like and in, in being able to explain to people how, how does this actually work? Sure. So with this evolution, like 15 years ago, what is 3D printing? That was the first question. I think over time with the media covering 3D printing and with so much fundraising in the last few years, it got more attention. So I would say the, the market has become more aware. So it's no longer uh, what is 3D printing. They kind of know what is 3D printing and what it can do. And now the question is not what can you do, but more the question is uh, what can you do compared to everybody else and how do you future-proof my future needs? So the, the, the conversation has changed where you need to hone in your unique selling points and value added. But uh, even if you pass that, they're, they're, the concern in the past was never that my equipment that I'm buying or subscribing will be obsolete in, in just two, three years. How do I future-proof myself for that? So definitely the audience is more educated and generally they're educated they're aware of 3d printing in a good way there are still some misinformation oh i didn't think you could do that or i thought you would just press uh, print and go and um, so i think they're definitely more knowledgeable but i still see um this is good and bad at very big companies that i've met um, and maybe because 3d printing is still a disruptive technology that the, the, the team leader assigned for what can 3D printing do for us is often very young uh, engineers, which is good and it's bad. It's good because they are not polluted by or brainwashed by subtractive manufacturing or the old way of doing things because you have to have an open mind. So that's why you have a very young, uh, assign a young team leader for additive uh, do the due diligence, but they do not necessarily have the influence of uh, uh, without, they need an executive sponsor to have any saying or decision making. So I think that's getting better over time that uh, people are more aware. Um, but lately I've been starting to see more visionary customers talking about where they see not what 3D printing has been or what it's doing today, but how it could be in five years, not just for additive manufacturing of 3D printing, but as part of the fourth industrial revolution, should we add AI, machine learning, sensors, big data, should it be in the cloud? Um, how should we uh, plan for factor of the future? So think are slowly coming together in the sense that the, the fourth industrial revolution um, 3D printing is one of those 
at least eight key technologies, but how do they uh, converge with uh, not all the other seven, but many of the other key technology of the fourth industrial revolution, how can they come together and be the solution for factory of the future uh, is what I'm starting to see now. Okay. And when you uh, like to dig into that, your comment about kind of who's usually on the other side of the table when you go into talk about 3D printing and, and talk about your machine and, and technology. So you said it's uh, in a lot of times kind of young engineers who are, are leading the charge. From kind of your experience, what does the the sales kind of channel and communication look like for um, for three D printers? I mean, my impression is that you've usually these are are long conversations, especially if the higher the price point of of the printer, and you're dealing with some engineers, some marketing folks, some maybe leaders at a higher level. But just in in your ex- experience, what how does the what's the evolution of a, a sales conversation like for a new machine? I think for um, newer, not cutting edge, but bleeding edge technology, the conversation is long and tedious and it takes time. But also bear in mind with the exploration of key technologies like FDM or uh, SLA or DLP. So what was a long conversation in the past for a $100,000 LA machine. You can now get that uh, from Form Labs for less than 4000 right? You can buy a very good FDM machine from Ultimaker. Um, so so uh, more and more printers require a, a, a much shorter budget approval process from uh, asking for a quarter million or a hundred thousand or fifty thousand is very different when you're below five thousand and you have a company credit card. So for for those I would say mature, uh, non-exclusive, meaning the core pens have expired, those conversations are much shorter. Uh, for conversations with the laser powder pen, that used to be six hundred thousand above, um, now you can get it for a hundred thousand. It's also getting shorter. And what people are focusing on more is ease of use and also uh, serviceability. But for new technology, new way of doing metal for binded jetting or or MHD or other technologies, you still need to educate them uh, in this cutting edge technology. Uh, And the same is true for for composites. Uh, uh, Even I didn't pay much attention to composites uh, until recently. And I see that it's been neglected, but I still need to teach people about composites because even people within the industry, not many people know about uh, what is anisotropic versus isotropic material properties. Uh, I didn't even know that until March this year. So for cutting edge technology, you still have a long cycle, but it's getting easier over time. Sure. And I guess another thread I'd like to pull is you've kind of been in a leadership position in a number of companies kind of building out teams and for sales and marketing and kind of driving first customers. What do you look for in building a team out to support a project or a product or material or advancement? I think uh, what, 
you know, a lot of the things that the investors look into um, is really about the, the team. Uh, you can have a big dream, you can be in a very big market, you have a potential of becoming a unicorn, all that, but if you don't have the right team uh, to execute, uh, you're not gonna be anything. So the people, the, the team is very important to me. So to answer your question, it is very much about a cultural fit that, that uh, especially for a startup, you've got to, um, not all people, just because they want to be in a startup, should be in a startup. Because um, high risk, high reward, um, they are not defined processes. You have to uh, create and develop those. So it is much more about being hands-on and not being a prima donna. So really being down to earth, uh, a little bit of evangelist because these younger startups, especially with a big uh, ambition, are trying to change the world. With Arrivo, we're trying to make the world lighter using continuous carbon fibers, in most cases stronger than metal, but three times lighter. So you've got to be a believer in something new and you're going to uh, be dealing with a lot of rejection and non-believers. And you're going to struggle to 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 make your vision uh, of the founders or the CEO to come true and make that happen. So, uh, um, so when I, I I look for people who are down to earth team players, you got to be a team player. If you're not a team player, you should you should really not be in a startup because uh, teamwork is is so important. It's not just about team, but there's got to be trust because. Uh, when you're in a startup, it's, if it's good and it's exciting and it has a big potential, there will be competitors. So you don't have the luxury of time to go slow. You have to go fast and you have to work hard. Um, so it's, it's a, a certain breed. Um, when I have people who have not worked for other startups, but if they have the, the willingness, uh, just like asking people who want to lose weight, but unless they're actually doing the work, cutting down the, um, the, the intake, changing their diet and exercise, unless you're willing to do what is needed and be disciplined, you're not going to be a right fit. So I would say cultural fit uh, attitude is, uh, is very important. Did that answer your question? Yeah, absolutely. And I guess again, um, just to follow up to that is, what advice would you give folks who are looking to make a transition either within the 3D printing space or from a different sector of manufacturing or technology um, on kind of joining a company or looking for a company? Do you, do you say that, Hey, it's, you get the most bang for your, your buck by kind of cutting your teeth at a established player and an established technology or do you, would you encourage them to look at some of the startups out there? I think the short answer is to get started and get in. Uh, meaning that 3D printing, um, I, I made a big bet 17 years ago and, and had options to leave the industry, but, uh, but uh, I, com I, uh, I was and I am committed to this industry for 17 years and I work for seven manufacturer. So uh, writing a a career choice working for, I wish somebody taught me that in school when I got my engineering degree that uh, do try to do some homework and what are the growth industries of vertical technologies and build a career around that. Nobody told me that. 
this is actually by accident that I jumped uh, bump into 3D printing, but uh, it was the right bet to stay with it. Um, some people left it uh, uh, 10 years ago, but realized that uh, it still has a lot of momentum and then they came back. So to answer your question, I would say get started. There's still a lot of growth potential for the industry. Most technologies take about 50 years to mature and, and peak. Uh, the internet, uh, we are right now since 1970, we are right at the peak of the internet uh, where it is known. 3D printing, if you look at metals, which is uh, driving most of the excitement, it's about 30 years. So the next 20 years, there's a lot of growth. Uh, I strongly believe there's a growth path for the industry going from 10 billion to 100 billion. So uh, to answer your question, just get started, whether it's small, or big, uh, get started, get to um, uh, network within the industry, Let, get to know at least the seven print engine of ASTM, uh, getting familiar with the, the people, the media, the, um, uh, the uh, academia that is uh, enabling a lot of these technologies. So basically just get started. Um, uh, it will be uh, an exciting journey. There will be newer technology, newer players that we don't even know yet um, it's going to be fun so if you're wanting to be part of 3d printing uh, it is not too late uh, uh, even now is a good time to to get started um, there will be if we look at the last recession of 08 and 09 there was a lot of uh, deployment uh, reallocation of people but what we learned from that is also core technologies expired. So you saw a lot of FDM clones. Well, uh, RCAM, electron beam melting, core pens expired recently. That's why you're starting to see new startup using electron beam as well as an example like Freemail in Sweden or Wayland Additive in UK or QBeam in China. So with this research we're going through now with so many people being laid off, they will, uh, and if they love 3D printing, they still want to remain in this industry and they will look at new way of doing 3D printing. So I think uh, in five to 10 years, there will be um, an expansion of the industry players, but also as uh, helping to fuel the growth of the industry. So um, just get in, start somewhere big or small, but learn and, and spend time and network. And definitely participate and be involved with AMOC which is one of the largest additive manufacturing user group um, that you probably uh, learn more in that one week than doing internet search for, for a quarter. For sure. And that's always been my experience. And I guess from my, kind of my last question as, as we get to wrap up, it's certainly been an interesting year with, with COVID and the pandemic and kind of limited face-to-face -face contact with uh, your existing customers and and new customers and and without form next kind of this year it'll be a year in in many cases where some of these trade shows have happened how do you how are you guys adapting or how are you rethinking the ways that you keep in touch with people and 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 tell them the stories about your technology um the the answer to, you, to your question is very similar to everybody else, right? With all the events and physical events being canceled and going virtual, we are all going virtual. How do you sell printers uh, without meeting them, traveling, doing seminars or trade shows? You have to move uh, online and virtual. So we're doing a lot of webinars. We 
I think in, in terms of a marketing hack, is still you need still need the branding and presence. So doing the Indiegogo Superstrata bike to showcase uh, what the technology can do uh, to get coverage is uh, is another way of moving that online. So having engagement, LinkedIn has been a very powerful tool for. Um, uh, so cold calling is dead. But what you're starting to see is social media influencers where you learn from the media. People, just like when you buy a car, you don't need to go to a dealership to buy a car anymore. You do all your research online and, and you have people that you trust and you read reviews and you almost have the deal made uh, by email, getting the best price before you show up and closing it. And the same is true right now is you can put a lot of content on LinkedIn and other platforms um, if anything, LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram is going to have a boost as people move online. Everybody's being confined at their home for now, right? So all online. For sure. All right. Well, thank you so much for joining. This has been very insightful for me. I've learned a lot and uh, hopefully look forward to seeing you in person soon or whenever that may be at the, the next trade show or whenever uh, we pass through the, the same town. So Thank you very much for your time today. Thank you so much for having me. Bye.